Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our broadcast. And we're continuing with part five of a series I'm entitling Young Men Breaking Free. I got the title of that series from a new booklet that I've written for young men seeking to stay free, basically prevent pornography problems, as well as to be set free from pornography problems. And if you're interested in a copy of Young Men Breaking Free, you can go to dads.org, that's simply D-A-D-S dot org, and you'll find that in the Family Life Center store. Now, what I'm going to be talking about today is actually not found in that booklet, but I'm going to be talking about two things very related, in my opinion. The first, the gigantic missing component in chastity education, and secondly, and related to that, the omitted part of pornography prevention and cure. Now, I just admitted to you what I'm talking about today I did include in my booklet. Part of it was space, and the other part of it was there's a tendency for misunderstanding when it comes to what I'm going to be recommending. So I'll explain all that a little bit later in the broadcast. But I'd like to get back to the big question, and what is that gigantic missing component of chastity education? And What's the omitted part of pornography prevention and cure? Well, I can summarize that, the answer to both, in a single word. Marriage. Marriage is the gigantic missing component. Let me explain, and starting with chastity education, but I'd like to take you back to a wonderful lunch I had with my wife Karen last Saturday. We were at a little outside cafe and enjoying lunch, and next to us were four of the prettiest little girls. Their two mothers had dressed them up in kind of bright-colored, I think, pink dresses with big pink bows in their hair. And these were the most polite, well-behaved little girls enjoying their lunch. And we looked at these girls reminiscing of our own girls when they were that age and such, and about, I'm just saying roughly 45 minutes later, we noticed that they began to start fidgeting. And in fact, a couple of real little ones had to get up and kind of walk around. Their mothers tried to get them to sit back down. And my remark when I saw that is, you know, God only made children to sit for so long. After that, you're basically fighting with nature. Now, this is the relevance for today's topic. Let's talk about some very basic biology. In today's world, boys and girls begin and complete puberty earlier than other generations. And while puberty is earlier and earlier, the average age for marriage is later and later. In other words, there's a huge time gap opening up. Let me give you some of the statistics on this. The median age for marriage in 1950 was 20 years old, 20.3 to be exact. In 2003, I wrote a book 
entitled The ABCs of Choosing a Good Wife and The ABCs of Choosing a Good Husband. That's actually two books, isn't it? But back in 2003, it jumped from 20 to 25, 25.3 to be exact. And then for women today, the median age for marriage is 27. And it was kind of shocking to me that I used the 2003 statistics when I updated the ABCs of Choosing a Good Husband and Good Wife back in 2007. And just since then, there's been a two-year jump in the median age for marriage. You know, this is fairly significant stuff. And men, back in 1950, the median age was 22.8 years old. By 2003, that had jumped to 27.1. And today, it has reached 29 years old. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised before too long. That gets bumped into the 30s. And we are told not only the median age is the highest it's ever been, as far as I know, at least in the United States. Today's young adults also have the lowest rates of marriage. And you've probably been hearing, actually, I became aware of this about seven years ago, but it's just picking up steam, picking up steam. Young people are either delaying marriage or avoiding it altogether, uh, particularly church weddings. So how does all this fit into chastity education? Let's go back to 1950 and look at that 16-year-old boy sitting in a chastity class and he would be taught that uh, it's the Christian moral thing to do to wait until you're married to have sexual relations, okay? In 1950, that average wait was six years. Now, let's fast forward to 2014. And now let's look at a 16-year-old in a chastity class the faith doesn't change. Morality doesn't change. So he's told that it's the Christian thing to do to save sexual relations until marriage. But now, rather than a six-year wait, it's a 13-year wait. That's on average, but it's more than double the waiting period that a young person had to wait for in the 1950s. Now, we've had a catastrophic moral collapse in sexual morality over the past few decades. And I believe that just as God didn't intend for little girls to sit any longer than 45 minutes to an hour at a table before they start fidgeting, well, young people after a certain lengthy period of time, like today, the fidgeting starts. In other words, they start going outside the boundaries of Christian morality. And we really haven't adjusted our chastity message about this very much. Parents, this isn't very high on their radar scope as far as how to guide and direct and, and um, basically form their children for life in the modern world. So, Basically, by just accepting that young people are getting married later and later in life, and while 
attempting to do nothing to reverse that trend in our parishes and in our homes, are we really fighting the way God has made 20-year-olds? In other words, are they being encouraged to wait for longer and longer periods without an encouragement for earlier marriage? And I chose my word there very carefully. Earlier marriage, but not early marriage. Teenage marriages are just so filled with problems and probability of divorce, I don't even want to go there. So by early marriage, I'm referring to teenage marriage. Earlier marriage is earlier than your late 20s, perhaps the mid or early 20s. But let me tell you about an email I got from my good friend Steve Ray, who most of you know about. Um, and Steve has been very complimentary to my family efforts and particularly for trying to help men and young men stay pure in today's world. And after, I believe it was a newsletter or something I had sent out, Steve Ray sent me an email back and he simply said, well, what about 1 Corinthians 7? And I knew exactly what he was talking about. But before I get there, I want to tell you about Corinth the Catholic Church in Corinth in the first century. The Catholic Church in Corinth, where Paul's epistles of First and Second Corinthians were written to, was a church in Greece that was absolutely filled with moral problems. Uh, the city itself, Corinth, was a wild sailor city and I'm just guessing from what I have studied about Corinth, I visited Corinth, but it might even make some of the people in Hollywood blush. It was that bad in Corinth. Uh, a Corinthian girl is another name for a prostitute. To Corinthianize was uh, a euphemism for fornication. It was a wicked city. There was a temple high up above the city of Corinth looking down, the temple of Aphrodite, reported to have up to a thousand prostitutes. I mean, this was a wild city. Uh, on the off two years after the Olympics, where every four years and every uh, two years in between the Olympics, the Corinthians would hold uh, a premier athletic games for the Roman Empire, and the front premier seats were reserved for the prostitutes from the temple of Aphrodite. You think we have it bad? This is what paganism looks like. And here, St. Paul founds a city uh, in Corinth. Now, that's not just bad. I'm going to tell you what's worse. What's worse is that the Catholics in Corinth were visiting the temple of Aphrodite prostitutes and even worse, they thought it was okay. You think we have problems? We have problems today. We have very serious problems today. But imagine a Catholic church where the people in the church, particularly the men, think it's okay to go visit the temple of Aphrodite. This is crazy. Even worse, there was incest going on between Catholics in this city. And the church thought it was okay. Hence, we have the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, tackling these amongst other subjects. 
And I was just thinking as I was preparing this broadcast today, you know, the Corinthian epistles of St. Paul are perhaps the most relevant books of the Bible for 21st century America. And I'm just thinking maybe we should just do a, a short teaching series on these epistles because this was as bad as it gets. In other words, the surrounding culture was horrible. Fornication was not viewed as something immoral. And then you have people who fully, with all their hearts, embraced a Christian faith, but the, the culture had so pulled them down, they were living like the culture rather than living like the call to the gospel had challenged them to do so. Hence, we get back to Steve Ray's email where he said to me, what about 1 Corinthians 7? And here it is. I had encouraged many things for men and young men to do to avoid a pornography habit, to avoid immorality. I think the particular topic, if I remember right back then, was from Psalm 119. It's one of the subjects of the series of broadcasts I'm doing on young men breaking free. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word, and, and went on from Psalm 119 and how Scripture is able to defend. And that's a valid point. Steve didn't deny that, but he said, what about 1 Corinthians 7? And here it is. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2 says, but because of the temptation to immorality, I just need to interject here. We're talking about Corinth now because it's so widespread. In Corinth, quote, everybody's doing it, unquote, like the young people say today about shacking up and living together before marriage and everything else. But because of the immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, St. Paul is saying to the Hollywood, New Orleans during Mardi Gras, San Francisco, the worst section of it, all put together, what is the answer? St. Paul says on a very practical level, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Dropping down, he says in verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. St. Paul clearly saw the value in celibacy, but he was very clear to emphasize that it is a gift, that if you've been given that gift of celibacy, you are given an opportunity to serve God in a more comprehensive way than someone who has the family responsibilities as well as wanting to spread the gospel. So, what happens to those without that gift? The next verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, and I'm going to repeat it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Now, that's the best advice St. Paul could give to Catholic Corinthians living in a situation 
that's probably going to resemble the United States of America before too many years. Okay, it's it was actually worse than here, believe it or not. You would think things couldn't get worse. They can and they probably will because it seems that the brakes are off in our wider society. But what should the believers do? First Corinthians chapter seven, verse nine. And it's not being mentioned enough in chastity talks and, you know, young people's talks and their formation and CCD and youth groups and college groups and such like that. Uh, I had to dig around a little bit, but I found this in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, and it says that marriage was given as, quote, an antidote by which to avoid the sins of lust, unquote. Now, St. Paul himself, for instance, Ephesians chapter 5, has the most elevated teaching of marriage in all of the Bible. It hits the pinnacle. So Paul isn't in any way denigrating those higher purposes and glories regarding Christian matrimony. And what I just described to you from the Catechism of Trent in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, this isn't the primary purpose of marriage. I would probably say it's not even the secondary purpose or purposes of marriage, but it does need to be mentioned today just as it did in ancient Corinth. Because (laughs) if you're basically living in such an immoral society, and basically the vast, vast majority, not all, certainly not all, but the majority, a significant majority, I'm afraid over the air to tell you just how high a percentage priests tell me young couples are cohabitating who come to their parishes for marriage. It's sky high. So in this situation, St. Paul is recommending marriage. And one of its purposes is to have a valid, godly outlet for the sexual desires that God has placed within men and women. Now, I need to switch gears slightly. I need to mention why I didn't include marriage as a way of breaking free from pornography in my booklet. The first reason was it would just take a little too much space for a booklet that I tried to keep really to the point. But there's another reason, and it's this, and hear this very carefully. Once a pornography habit is established, it is very likely that marriage will not cure it. In other words, to say it in another way, if a young man develops a pornography habit as a single man, he is very likely to carry that with him and continue it in marriage. And unfortunately, this is happening in such large numbers of families, Christian families, that it's beyond description. If you want to read an account of this, an honest, transparent, humble account, there's an evangelical singer by the name of Clay Cross who had unwisely developed a pornography habit as a single man. He really, really wanted to live a pure life, and he married a wonderful young woman, and he hoped that marriage itself would end the pornography habit and it didn't. It nearly destroyed him, 
and his marriage, and Clay Cross and his wife wrote the book, I Surrender All. He did break free from pornography, but it wasn't any automatic falling away of a pornography habit because he got married. Uh, Yes, it kind of went into dormancy for a very limited period of time, but it came roaring back in his marriage. And one of the things that I'm saying here is that both the high rates of sexual immorality, including both fornication, pornography, and cohabitation, and everything else, with this more than doubling in my lifetime of the waiting period between a chastity class and the average age of marriage, you're really doubling the pressures on young people. And once these are engaged in, uh, it's obviously going to weaken the moral life, but it will also weaken the future marriage. Uh, Seven years ago, I saw these trends developing that are basically being recognized, I guess you would say, uh, today. And I rewrote a updated chapter five of the book, The ABCs of Choosing a Good Wife. And in chapter five, that's entitled Earlier or Later Marriage. And I began with a quote from one of the more outstanding of all the church fathers, early church fathers. He's a saint and doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom, who is also, in my opinion, the greatest preacher who ever lived. Um, I was reading his sermons as a Protestant minister, and I knew without any shadow of a doubt whatsoever, I was encountering the real thing. And he started sharing a lot of things about historic Christianity that I didn't know about, and one of the things that led me into the church. His family teaching is also priceless. And I'm going to quote what he says about earlier marriage, and I want parents to listen very carefully to this. But at the season of marriage, let no one defer it. Behold, I speak the words of a matchmaker, that you should let your sons marry. When your son is grown up, before he enters upon warfare or any other course of life, consider his marriage. And if he sees that you will soon take a bride for him, and that the time intervening will be short, he will be able to endure the flame of passion patiently. Did you get that? And if he sees that the intervening time is short, he will be able to endure the flame of passion patiently. That so summarizes everything I've been trying to say in this broadcast. But, now here's the but, but if he perceives that you are remiss and slow and wait until he acquires a large income and then you will contract a marriage for him, despairing at the length of time, he will readily fall into fornication. Therefore, I exhort you, if he finds his bride chaste and knows her body alone, then his desire will be vehement, his fear of God the greater, and the marriage truly honorable, receiving bodies pure and undefiled. That is just worth a million bucks. It truly is. And that's from St. John Chrysostom. And I have that quote in chapter five of the ABCs of choosing a good wife. 
You can pick up a copy of that book if you like at dads.org. Just go to the Family Life store. Now, also included in here, Father Michael Orsi, who's been on EWTN. I believe he's uh, either past or current chaplain of the Ave Maria Law School. He lists some cases based on his pastoral experience. He says, later marriage is a major cause of the breakdown in sexual ethics. It says it allows self-centeredness to solidify, prolongs adolescence, delays maturity. He says promiscuity during one's 20s later leads to a weakened married life, exactly what St. John Chrysostom said. So it's very interesting. Teenage marriage, I do not recommend. It is just such a high probability of divorce. Uh, I don't recommend it. But uh, you don't need to wait until you're 29 years old to uh, get married either. There are three articles on the dads.org website. You go to the article section. There's a whole courtship section. There are three articles there. Two I have written very close to the theme of this broadcast. The other one by Dr. John Van Epp, the author of the book, Don't Marry a Jerk, all laying out the case while earlier in their 20s might be a really wise step for young people who are contemplating uh, marriage, parents encouraging when their children should get think about getting married and when not. Obviously, you have to meet the person that you believe God has for you. But again, what about our chastity formation? Shouldn't we be talking about not just say no to sexual relations till you're married? We have to say that. Don't get me wrong. That has to be a part of it. But shouldn't we bring marriage into the mix? Shouldn't we be reassuring young people who may have a fear of entering into a lifelong commitment, seeing so many divorces, that it can actually work if you do it God's way? And particularly for young men, I've noticed that uh, it seems that, uh, at least in my experience, the majority of chastity educators, these special speakers that are brought in, that the majority seem to be uh, women, and many of them are unmarried, why not have married couples? And particularly for the young men, why not have young married men, say like Jason Everett, who can speak of the beautifulness of marriage to young men, encourage them to tackle that commitment, step up to the plate for marriage. So that's my two cents for what we can do to change the environment which we find ourselves in. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9 leads the way. You've been listening to episode 40 of Faith and Family. Till next time, this is Steve Wood. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.